This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. We could do better than that. It's not quite as early as um, we're used to, right? Good morning, because it is a great morning. Well, welcome and thank you for uh, coming to Whitworth. We're proud to host the third Community Engagement Institute. And this conference has as its goal to bring together campus and community in the inland Northwest to work to address the needs of our community. Your conference organizers want you to take some time to think and talk about how we can work together for the good of Spokane. And now think about that. Universities as partners with the community. We're getting rid of the ivory tower image in your head. And think about the state farm agent <clears throat> when they say, like a good neighbor. <laughs> so that's what this conference is all about. Um, my name is Rosetta Rhodes. I'm the uh, Vice President of Student Life and Dean of Students here and um, have a history of working in community engagement. And um, as usual, I'm always thrilled to be able to be involved in anything regarding um, working with our community to help um, in improve quality of life. So I really want you to know that I appreciate you. And I want to tell you a little bit about who you are. Some of you today have come from the field of education, both K through 12 and teacher educators. But you all will be spending the day with the gifted scholar practitioners from Teaching Tolerance, a program of the Southern Poverty Law Center. You will learn about how to use the free resources of Teaching Tolerance to broaden your curriculum and enhance your teaching by bringing diverse perspectives into your course content. This is an exciting opportunity, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Whitworth is delighted to support you in your work to include a breadth of perspectives in your teaching and learning. So once again, I say welcome. Now others of you are faculty and staff from universities who are involved in the community. And you're joining us here for two days of reflection. You may, learn, you may be learning about how to do community-based research or how to incorporate service learning into your course. Or you may be here to share the results of your research or to present the outcomes of community engagement on your own expertise, on your students, and on the community yourself, itself. Sorry about this. I want you to know that Whitworth, in its mission, calls upon all its faculty, staff, and students to serve humanity. And so I welcome you here today to a community of scholars and practitioners. May your expertise in teaching always reach beyond your college walls, the boundaries of your discipline, and even your comfort zone. That's when it really gets interesting. Before I introduce my colleague from WSU, I want to cover a few housekeeping items um, to ensure that you're going to have a great visit here at Whitworth. So first, we have some wonderful staff and students supporting the event today from the Dornsife Center for Community Engagement. You'll see them in their red polo shirts. Uh, if you have any questions or needs, just find one of them. They know everything. Uh, thank you, Dornsife Center. Second, we'll be meeting during this conference here in Warehouser Hall for our sessions and the Hickson Union Building, which we call our hub, for lunch. 
Here in Warehouser Hall, the restrooms on all three floors are pretty much located in the, on, in the same place on the east end of the building. So you're just gonna go out and turn left, regardless of what floor you're on. Go out and turn left and you'll run into the restrooms. You can't miss them. We're sharing this space with students, so it may get just a little bit crowded at times, but just bear with us. We also have snack machines in the stairwell and Starbucks coffee next door in Robinson Hall and back in the hub. So Robinson Hall is next door this way, the hub is further down that way, and in the stairwell here, there are, you can get some coffee. Sessions will meet on the second and third floors of this building. The um, elevator is, you go out to your right, the stairs go to your left. You'll find a list of sessions outside the door of each room. At the end of your sessions, we'll ask you for feedback to share with the presenters. We're so grateful for your feedback. Please give us the feedback. It really is a helpful reality check. Now in your conference folder, there's also a survey of the overall conference. We made some changes this year based on last year's feedback, so thank you again for sharing your great ideas to make this event better. Any questions on, on any of the logistics that I've just gone over? Perfect. And now it's my pleasure to introduce a friend and a colleague, someone who finds herself in the middle of doing our common work of bringing universities and communities together to build the future, Dr. Lisa Brown. Dr. Brown is the Chancellor of WSU Health Sciences Spokane. She leads her university at a critical time of growth stewarding the launch of the state's second publicly funded medical school to serve the health needs of Eastern Washington. That deserves a hand clap itself. Thank you. Lisa has rolled up her sleeves to take on the same issues that engage us all. She has teamed up with Providence and the Empire Health Foundation to create a teaching health clinic that will provide more residency slots for the doctors in the WSU pipeline and support the community with critically needed healthcare. Lisa's success in working with multiple partners in regulatory environments comes as a result of her 20 years of work as a state representative and state senator in the Washington legislature. She brings together the 30,000 feet vision with the ground floor view, the kind of double perspective that is needed when big institutions like higher ed come to partner with communities. She is definitely one of us. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Lisa Brown. Thank you, uh, Rosetta, and thank you, Whitworth. I have to tell you, as I go around the community, now in my role as Chancellor of WSU Spokane, but before that, as state legislator from Spokane, Whitworth faculty and leadership and students are always engaged in what's happening in the community. And uh, it starts, I think, uh, with the mission and vision of, of the university and how that has carried out over the years. And Prominent in that has been Rosetta Rhodes. So I just want to take a moment to thank her and for her work. I believe she was around at the beginning 
of the Inland Northwest Service Learning Partnership. Uh, so we are here today partly because of you. Thank you, Rosetta. <laughs> WSU Spokane has a focus as the Health Sciences Campus for Washington State University. And as you heard, we are growing not only our, our nursing and pharmacy and now our medical school across the health science spectrum, but we believe, and the mission of a land-grant university is to be wherever the state needs us to be. So we have extension offices in every county in the state. We have campuses all over the state. Our medical school will be a community-based medical school in which the students will do a basic foundational training here in Spokane, but then they will go all over the state and partner in clinical partnerships, hospitals and community clinics to learn the second part of their medical training and hopefully become attached to communities and want to continue to serve there. Uh, it's a pleasure to be part of this Community Engagement Institute and it's a pleasure to be part of the Inland Northwest Service Learning Partnership, INSLIP. For those of you who may not be as familiar with it, it is a unique, I believe at, at the national level, in some ways a unique collaborative, a collaborative that brings together higher education institutions and community uh, partnership organizations, as well as the city of Spokane, and to address the community's needs and to integrate the, uh, ac the academy with the community. And I think that it is um, demonstrating that when you, um, when you do service learning, you actually, you're giving service, but you are learning about your community in ways that will serve you your entire life. And I want to give you a specific example of that. My path began in a service learning organization at the University of Illinois. It was called Volunteer Illini Projects. And in the 1970s, we, um, we believed we were one of the biggest student-run, student-led service organizations in the country. And we had multiple projects, everything from prison outreach, which was considered very controversial then and is very controversial now, to tutoring uh, in um, economically challenged neighborhoods, to the project to uh, blood drive. Um, the project I worked on was a project in which I was a friend to a young boy with um, autism. And how could I have known back then that that very critical experience in my life would lead me 20 years or 30 years later in the legislature to helping to form the Northwest Autism Center and state funding for it here in the state. And so it's a continuum of activity that I think we all know, who, those of us who are teachers, that by teaching you actually learn the subject. Well, by serving, you are actually served in so many ways. And so thank you to everyone who's part of that. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the partnerships of INSLIP and recognize our uh, higher education institutions who are part of it. The Community Colleges of Spokane, Eastern Washington University, Gonzaga University, Whitworth University, and WSU Health Sciences Spokane and WSU. 
So thank you to the higher education institutions. All of these organizations have committed resources, staff to community engagement. I also want to acknowledge nonprofit organizations that are part of this collaborative, including Catholic Charities, SNAP, the United Way, and communities in schools. Well, mentioning communities and schools is the perfect entree for me to um, our next speaker, and that is Ben Stuckert, who was the founder of Communities and Schools. Uh, I have known Ben, and I knew his father, um, Larry, so involved in our community for many years with SNAP uh, for a long time, and we also came together as a professor and student in a Gonzaga uh, political action class. And at the time, I was the public official, now he's the public official, serving his second term as uh, in the city council and as city council president. Uh, we are very fortunate, and this is another example of how commitment to service and uh, understanding the structural issues that affect people's lives can then lead to a lifetime of, of public service. And we have a great uh, leader here today, and you'll see, I think, the threads of connection from the speakers uh, coming together as I ask you to join me in welcoming Council President Ben Stucker. Well, thank you, Chancellor Brown. Uh, what she didn't tell you about the uh, class she taught at Gonzaga 10 years ago was uh, she asked us to do a political activity, and my first response was uh, an illegal political activity. Um, and she was an elected official at the time, so she told me if she didn't know about it, it was okay. Uh, but thank you, Lisa, so much. And uh, we're so lucky to have you and Rosetta in our community. And thank you to Inslet for organizing this event that truly strengthens our community. And most of all, thank you. All of you that are attending the Community Engagement Institute, thank you. You are here because you believe that student-centered learning, community-focused research, and opening the doors of our classrooms to new experiences can lead to better outcomes for our community. So thank you for being there. I have the privilege of leading our city council, and as part of that privilege, I was able to introduce a proclamation last night related to the day's event that was passed by the council, and I'll read that proclamation now. The Community Engagement Institute. Whereas the Community Engagement Institute brings together administrators, faculty, staff, and community representatives from the Inland Northwest to discuss service learning and community engagement initiatives, share promising practices, and examine how institutions may become better able to seek solutions to complex challenges. And whereas the third Community Engagement Institute conference is being held today, April 19th, here at the beautiful Whitworth University. And whereas this conference features the Inland Northwest Service Learning Partnership between our region's incredible institutions of higher learning, the Community Colleges of Spokane, EWU, Gonzaga University, Whitworth University, and Washington State University Spokane, and whereas the Community Engagement Institute Conference also involves community nonprofit organizations like Catholic Charities, SNAP, United Way, and Communities and Schools, and whereas this year's Community Engagement Institute Conference is co-sponsored by the Southern Poverty Law Center and features a keynote address by Dr. Kate Schuster, author of Teaching the Movement, the State of Civil Rights Education, and whereas the City of Spokane benefits greatly by the partnership forged and developed at the Community Engagement Institute now, therefore, be it resolved by the Spokane City Council that we hereby salute the Community Engagement Institute for the incredible work 
they are doing to promote the greater good in the city of Spokane and look forward to an incredible 2016 conference. So I'm also here for a very personal reason. Um, you may not know, but in high school and in college, I participated in a debate, an experience that prepared me perhaps for public service a bit. Um, and in my experience, I got to know uh, Dr. Kate Schuster quite well. And uh, Dr. Schuster is a public scholar in the truest sense of the word. She has used her expertise in the field of teacher education and her PhD from Claremont Graduate School to support research at local, national, and international levels in favor of engaged pedagogy and the integration of diverse perspectives. Kate provides research, project management, and project evaluation for K-12 and higher education. She also serves as a consultant for the Southern Poverty Law Center, where she completed the independent evaluation of the Perspectives for a Diverse America, curriculum and research on state standards and civil rights history. The latter project resulted in a 2011 study that graded all 50 states on their ability to teach and pass on to the next generation a vital element of our American history, the civil rights movement. That study resonated with colleges and communities, resulting in the creation of community partners, first at Whitman College and now across Washington State, to bring college students into K-12 classrooms to talk about civil rights history. Thanks to Kate's research, a high school student in Spokane had actually begun an effort to launch a referendum vote to require Teach the Movement curriculum, identified by Kate and designed by Kate, become required in all K-12 schools in Washington State. Now that's what we call impact. Teachers and scholars are uniquely positioned to inspire that impact, and that is why we are here today. Please join me in welcoming a true public scholar and a formidable debate opponent, Dr. Kate Schuster. Thank you so much, Ben. This debate forges these incredible relationships. I haven't seen Ben in 15 years. And uh, when we reconnected on social media, you know, I was like, well, it's no surprise that you've become the overlord of Spokane, as far as I can tell. <laughs> so I know he has a brilliant future. I'm just really great to connect with him. <clears throat> so hello, conference. My name is Kate. Um, it, as I say to uh, many of the middle school students that I have the pleasure to work with, it's easy to remember my name because it rhymes with debate. Um, and so a lot of what it is that I do and study, um, I, I work in a diverse and idiosyncratic part of the education ecosystem. Um, and that's an, one way of saying that I have a very interesting resume, as I've been told, uh, in many job searches. I, I've had a long path in education that's taken many twists and turns, and I'm really thankful for the work that Russ and her colleagues have done to create this conference, because I think that there are so few contexts in which we in the larger education ecosystem, that is to say the kind of the K to 20 plus system, get together and have informed conversations about how we can build partnerships uh, across grade levels and across different kinds of communities. So, before I get to the question of rigor and relevance, which is the topic of my speech, I want to begin by exploring the question, uh, which may seem a little bit basic, but I want to unpack for a second, of what is education for? Because if we think about what it is that we have in common here in this room, in, in the institutions where we work, we're all interested in education. Um, and 
I mean, when I started, th when I think about this question, I get to use what little I remember of my high school Latin class, uh, which is that education, et etymolo the etymology of education is e ducare. Uh, so the e is out, and the ducare is the infinitive of to lead. And so uh, to educate is from the Latin to lead out, which I think raises a lot of questions for me. There's at least four questions that I want to talk about. One, who's being led? Two, where are they coming from? Where are they being led from? Three, who's doing the leading? And then four, where are we leading them to? Uh, and so I want to use those as a structure to explore what I think are, are some common ways we understand education and suggest some ways forward. Um, so perhaps I can do some leading out of you as well in the context of this presentation. Um, I, I just Before I start with that, though, I just want to point out that if we think about education as a process of leading out, which I'm going to problematize a little bit, it, it, at least this unpacking shows us that education is itself intrinsically a transactional and dynamic relationship. In other words, it's not a commodity that we get to de deposit in the heads of students. Uh, any of you who are still committed, by the way, to this banking model of education, I'll be happy to give you a bibliography uh, afterwards and we can have a conversation about that. But I think most of us, especially who are involved in engaged community pedagogies, uh, understand that education is not simply a commodity uh, to be deposited in the heads of students, but it's something that we generate together. So we'll begin by the question of who is being led in education and from where. And I want to suggest that we can't separate the who and the from where, that the social location of the students that we serve uh, it constitutes them in a way that makes it deeply problematic to separate their subjectivity from the context in which that subjectivity was created and continues to be constituted. So I want to talk about our students for a second. They are more diverse than ever. Uh, this year, a majority of students in public schools in the United States are non-white. A majority are also, sadly, low income. There, the increase in the number of high poverty schools, that number has increased by 60% since the year 2000. So we're seeing uh, a school population in the United States that is increasingly segregated by race, ethnicity, and class, like the rest of America, not just our students. And by many accounts, our students are more segregated, our schools are more segregated now than they were before the Brown decision, which is disturbing. Here's another thing about our students. They're not widgets. They're not widgets. They're not interchangeable parts. My husband uh, tells a story about a time when he went to a teacher conference. His parents were educators, so as a child, he was dragged to a lot of these conferences and, uh, you know, sort of parked in the back of the room with a coloring book or whatever. And <clears throat> he went to a conference where uh, a, a guy who was giving a presentation uh, said, you know, I used to believe that schools should be more like businesses. And I came up in business, uh, and this gentleman's business was evidently blueberries oddly enough, the packaging and distribution of blueberries. And he said, uh, I used to go to conferences, education conferences, much like this one, and give a speech where I would draw on my knowledge of the blueberry business to tell teachers how to run their schools and universities. And he said, I gave this speech once, and a teacher raised their hand, and they said, I just have a question about the blueberry business. And the guy said, oh, yeah, what's that? And she said, well, so what do you do with the blueberries that are like moldy or maybe not, not in a good shape, you know, in the same standard shape? And he's like, we, you know, we get rid of those. And she said, yeah, 
that's the thing, is that we don't really get to do that in school. And this, this guy who had been going around, do, you know, with this, his, preaching his corporate gospel of schools, he said, okay, and that changed everything for me. And now he has become a champion of differentiated instruction in, in schools. So I would love to find that teacher who asked that question and just thank that person. But uh, anyway, that's the story that my husband told me, and I think it's important because we educators in the K to 20 plus ecosystem, we know that our students are not interchangeable, but we're in the middle of pu big public conversations where people, even some of whom have teaching experience, talk about our students as if they were widgets, and we know that they're not. <clears throat> the other thing our students are not, is they're not passive knowledge receptacles, as I said. We, I think, as a community are coming around uh, to the death of the banking education model. And I think our students, in general, are smarter than we give them credit for. So I just came from a middle school debate tournament in New Jersey uh, this past Saturday, uh, where I lost my phone, a student almost vomited on my shoes, and, you know, et cetera. It was crazy. Uh, but there were 300 students there, and at the end of the day, we had six middle school students debating about the legacy of Justice Scalia. And I watched a debate where they talked about the Heller decision, stare decisis, reproductive rights, judicial activism, and these are 10 to 14-year-olds debating in front of an audience of 400 people, which goes to show you that if you scaffold student learning, they can do anything. They're brilliant, they will surprise us, and we want not to get jaded, I think, because we want to recognize what our students are possible if we empower them. And the fi final thing I want to say about our students is where they come from matters. Where they come from matters. Uh, and I already talked about social location, but I think we're at a moment in American education policy where we are struggling, many of us are struggling to pull back from a deficit perspective that has plagued the way that we think a lot about our, our, our non-middle class, non-white students, um, where there are education providers um, who go around and provide services all over the country who are essentially teaching uh, about stereotypes about poor people. One common example that my colleagues at Teaching Tolerance have recently published about is Ruby Payne, um, who is the most uh, popular provider of poverty education seminars uh, for K-12 school districts all over the United States. And she uh, informs educators that they may not know about a culture of poverty that exists among poor people. And one of the things that she says is, for example, poor people are more likely to know what a roach is than rich people. Just think about that for a second. That's kind of messed up. She also says that poor people are more likely to know about duct tape than middle class people. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been to some pretty strip mall middle class Home Depots, and they seem to have anti-roach spray and duct tape. And so I think, what, not to pick too much on Dr. Payne, but th this idea that when we think about our students are becoming more diverse, they, where they come from matters. What we want to do is try as best we can to identify the stereotypes that we may have uh, and figure out where we are as far as the privilege that we occupy so that we can transform from a deficit perspective where we're not saying, I'm, remember education is I'm leading you out? We're not saying, oh, you poor child, I'm leading you out of your deprived background into my shiny white middle class background. Oh, wait, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Pause, unpack it, and remember that these students have assets. Uh, they, have, they, they are bringing things to the table. Where they come from matters, not because of what it lacks, but because of the abundance that it brings. And I think we have to work really hard as educators 
some of us more than others, some of us who come from white middle class backgrounds like me, we have to work really hard to make sure that we are turning on that abundance mindset and that that's something that we need to be conscious of. So <clears throat> we're all educators here in some capacity. So we've talked about who is being led and where they're being led from, and now I want to move towards who leads. Who leads, and here I'm gonna talk about us. So one thing we know about K-20 educators is that the, the K while K-20 students are increasingly diverse, their instructors are not. Their instructors are not. In fact, in K-12, it is an overwhelmingly middle class uh, set of teachers. It's overwhelmingly white, uh, and it's still largely female. So teachers in K-12 are, are relatively, they may, be, they may be, I've read some stuff that say they may be the most, the single most homogenous workforce in the United States, which I think is fascinating. Um, so we have a mismatch between a population that's rapidly diversifying and a workforce that's not. And frankly, in higher education too, we are still seeing you know, white cis males occupying the most uh, instructional spaces, and this is you know, more true in some disciplines than others. Um, but it is, we are not diversifying in higher ed, and higher ed is going through its own transitions, you know, moving from the, uh, you know, we have this, the so-called PhD oversupply, which <clears throat> that may be code for we don't want to tenure you here, take five adjunct jobs, but I don't want to go off on that right now. <laughs> and the, but the mismatch overall in the K-20 ecosystem between the students and the teachers is a problem because the research is very conclusive on the matter that diverse instructors are essential for student success, full stop. They are. And that's true in STEM, it's true in social sciences, it's true in counseling, it's true in teacher education. Uh, it even is true in so-called vocational disciplines where we're talking about electrical engineering or other kinds of um, manual, like I've seen work on uh, nursing in this discipline, on woodworking. It, it is true pretty much across the board. Um, and it's also true not just in academic student development, but social and emotional skills. So if you think about all of the axes that we want our students to grow around, um, we need diverse teachers for diverse students in order to get success. Now, <clears throat> it, it's also a problem in a more, in a less instrumental way. We want our students to succeed, so we need more diverse teachers. But it's also a problem because it betrays, I think, of underlying sickness in our society. I'm a statistician by training, uh, I, and that means that I believe in chance. <laughs> statisticians, statisticians have to believe in chance. If you ever hear a statistician say, I don't believe in coincidences, mm, they may need to go back and rethink you know, their, uh, their intro to stats class. Um, but, so I don't believe it's an accident that we have this mismatch, uh, that the academy recruits, promotes, and retains uh, overwhelmingly white, cis, male faculty. Now, I, I'm not saying that it's because our administrators are racist. I'm saying it's because we are living in a society that is struggling with the legacy of systemic racism, which is the founding narrative of this country. And that is real, and it's background radiation that we all, uh, that variously oppresses or privileges all of us. And I think it's something that we have to interrogate if we want to think seriously about these questions of how to transform our pedagogy using the tools of rigor and relevance, which is, I promise you, where I'm getting to. Now, I think one of the things that holds us back as educators, frankly, is that we operate in a world with a pretty narrow view of what counts as scholarship, and I think that's true in the K-20 ecosystem. For, at the K-12 level, we definitely don't see teachers as scholars, even though teachers are doing applied research in the classroom all the time, every day. But teaching is not understood as intellectual work. 
I have a PhD in education. Um, I have applied sometimes to teach adjunct classes in statistics, um, and uh, I've taken advanced econometrics. I think I'm qualified to teach stats 101. I miss being in the classroom, and I've been told, mm, yeah, education, we really see that as a vocational degree, um, so we're gonna hire these people from psych instead. And I do think there is a prejudice associated with education where we see it, frankly, can we just say, women's work, yeah? Uh, we see education as women's work, we see education as a vocational process. We don't see it as applied research, even though it is. Because how do you figure out how to teach your class better the next time you do it? You interrogate your processes, you look at your data, you refine your methods, and then you go in the classroom and you try again. And so every single minute that a teacher is doing this, so they are mind workers, is what my colleague Charles Kirchner calls teachers, which I think is an interesting idea, the idea of a mind worker. But we have deprofessionalized teachers, and that's why we have all these conversations about teacher tenure at the K-12 level, is because the public doesn't see teachers as practicing intellectuals. They see them essentially as transactional content deliverers, right? They take the knowledge about you know, the Reconstruction era, and then they deposit it in the head of the child, and they just move on. So uh, they are producing research, they are creative, and frankly, in early childhood, they're the key to our civilization. Right? They civilize these little you know, beasts that we send into them who don't know how to properly clean themselves. And so we need these early childhood educators, otherwise our civilization will probably collapse. Um, so we have these battles over tenure, and I think that in, the, in higher education, we can do a better job of supporting our colleagues in K-12 by making more clear connections about how what we are doing uh, is, is the same as what our colleagues are doing, uh, and that we are all involved in the business of producing research. We should stand in solidarity. And I don't think we do a good job of that in higher education, frankly. So we talked about the K-12 people who were doing the leading. You know, who's leading out? So we talked about K-12, and I want to talk about higher ed a little bit more. Um, we are living in a world, we are, we are trying to produce scholarship. Uh, some of us, you know, in every discipline, there are different expectations. But if you are someone who's at a university who is in a tenure-track job, you're going to have to publish some things. Now, publishing some stuff uh, in a world where the academic business journal model is, frankly, obsolete, um, charging giant amounts of money for subscriptions of ever-proliferating journals that nobody reads, yeah? Uh, that this is a model that is not designed to create public conversations about research. Uh, and it's weird because, on the one hand, in the academic world, we have this, this tremendous push to get your article in a, I, I published for my dissertation in an open access journal intentionally uh, into EPAA, and uh, the average blog post that I write for teaching tolerance has been viewed thousands of times more than the number of clicks, which I can see, uh, on the, in, in a top-tier top open access academic journal. And so we're living in a world where on the one hand, we have BuzzFeed and Upworthy and these content providers that are driving public discussions about important public policy issues and the Kardashians. Um, and, and all of that is being measured and we say, oh, it's important socially because look at how many clicks or views it has. And on the other hand, in the academy, we're moving in the opposite direction. We're like, look, you know, this very specialized journal which nobody reads, good job, tenure for you. And so I think there is this disconnect that at some point uh, the academy may have to confront. Or not, you know, we may just continue going our own way. Um, the, and so the decisions, I think, that they devolve in, in some kind, they devalue, these decisions devalue the kind of scholarship that actually is focused on public impact where like, actual humans will read it and then do something with it. Yeah, scholarship that makes a difference. I think that the academy, although we pride ourselves 
in the academy wanting to make a difference and wanting to change the civic dialogue, we are not putting ourselves and our faculty and our, even frankly, therefore our students in a position where we are driving public conversations. And I worry that the expertise at universities will make itself obsolete. And I think that's troubling. Uh, you know, and in education in particular, let me just say that research in education, it's really hard to do applied research in education. Um, I'm not, I don't believe, like Edie Hirsch does, that a lot of education is a cargo cult, but I do think that education, uh, and this is pretty well documented, for those of you who are, have heard some things about the crisis of reproducibility that's happening right now in the social sciences, uh, yeah, it turns out that, that, of course, as many of us know, journals only like to publish things that are positive findings, uh, and uh, so things that are negative findings or no, no effect studies, they often get file drawered, they don't get published. And over the last several years, it has turned out that many of the research that many of us may have, for example, based our master's thesis on, uh, <clears throat> could not be reproduced when the experiments were rerun. And so, uh, and of the reprodu reproduction, education is one of the lowest disciplines where anyone has even attempted to reproduce studies, let alone been able to reproduce them. It's because it's hard to do research in education. The classroom's kind of a black box, right? We know what goes into it. The teacher, the students, maybe a textbook or whatever, and then some stuff happens, and then we get some data out, but because, as we said, our students aren't widgets, yeah? Our teachers are artists, you know, they're not robot content deliverers, so the classroom is this incredibly complex place, and then you say, I'm gonna compare this classroom to this classroom to this classroom. Whoa, now we've got a lot of incommensurability problems. It is really hard to do research in education. Now, I like a randomly controlled trial as much as the next girl. I don't know who the next girl is, and that's a weird thing for me to say out loud. Um, <coughs> I, like I said, I'm a statistician. I believe in this, but I think we have gone too far in research and education in fetishizing this as the gold standard uh, for education, and it's hard for us to do this kind of research where we apply controls um, in our business, because what are we gonna say? Like, you kids over here, you're gonna get the civic education program, and you kids over here, you're gonna get Cheetos. And then at the end, we're gonna compare and see what, no, you know, we don't, we're not, in the, that's not ethical, uh, and uh, Cheetos are disgusting. Um, well, actually, I really like Cheetos. It's the spicy ones I'm not so keen on. So education research is hard. So that's what, I, so I've talked about who's doing the leading. And I think who's doing the leading is complicated, it's changing, and it's dynamic. Um, and I, I haven't met most of you yet, but I'll make two guesses about why you're here. One, it's not to get rich. <laughs> it's probably not to get rich. If it is, you might be in the wrong room. Um, and you're also here because you want to change the world. Uh, so the kind of applied research that you are doing, I think, is the kind of research that we should be doing, and it's the research that can change the world. The question is, how do we move the parts of society that are acting as obstacles that are in our way? So now I'm going to go back to the final question of education as leading out, and I'm going to get to the... So we've talked about who is led, from where, by whom, and now to where. So where are we going with this? Um, <coughs> It is an old question, uh, what are the aims of education? And so I wanna talk a little bit about rigor and relevance because uh, I think that, well, I'll get there. So first, rigor. When people talk about rigor, uh, it's, it, it's fascinating to me when people talk about rigor in education because they treat it like it's a static term. They treat it like it's a, it's a thing. Like this is rigor 
and we can move it around. And again, it's a piece of content that can be delivered. Um, and rigor is one of those things in public policy that nobody is really against. You know what I mean? You never really hear someone say, you know what, I'm against rigorous education. Or the people who are running for school board who are like, you know, I want all ch children to learn. Well, who says that they're against that? I, mean, I only want some of them to learn. You know, so it, it operates as this trope, rigor, in public policy discourse, I think, in a really interesting way. Um, it, and it, so it's hard to be against rigor, but I want to suggest that rigor doesn't exist without context, because it's rigor for whom, and in what context, and why. I, I could teach you algebra two, and that might be rigorous, but that's probably not going to help you read Chaucer. <laughs> and so rigor is, has to be all, always situated in context. So when we talk about rigor, I think what we're really talking about is are we taking seriously the challenge of giving students the tools that they need to understand complex, nuanced, controversial subjects? You know, anything from calculus, slavery, evolution, Tolstoy, mortgages, all of these big things that it are hard to understand that students need a toolbox to do. That's really, what I think, what we're talking about when we're talking about rigor. And everybody wants it. Uh, but the problem, one of the problems with rigor, is that it's really hard to measure. <laughs> we don't know when we've done it. Um, so we kind of know what it looks like, you know, uh, but we don't necessarily know when it's been achieved. And as I said, research and education is super hard. So it's always, to me, in a masochistic way, uh, a little entertaining when people talk about testing. Uh, I'm fascinated by public conversations about testing. They say that we've tested, and they'll talk about testing like how many times we tested, um, and how often, and, and how, how often we test. So no, no, how much we test, and how often we test. So the depth of the test and the frequency of the test. And it's like they talk about testing like it's a meat thermometer. You know, <laughs> we could just dip this thing into the kid, and, and see, oh, no, it's not done yet. No, not done yet. It must reach this temperature in order to get it. And so, so rigor is this unstable concept that we don't really have, know how to measure, but everybody agrees that we're for it. So to me, that's very interesting. Um, it's very unstable. And, and I, I'm tired of this constant education is in crisis talk. We've been talking about education being in a state of crisis uh, ever since we ever since the founding of the society, of this society, and especially since we decided to let all of the children go to school, and not just the white ones, uh, or the white male ones. And so we are, you know, we're, we're driven in the K to 20 ecosystem at, by these constant calls to crisis and action, and we gotta regulate, and you know, it's been ever so since Sputnik, especially. Um, but I think, and so I, I get that, that there's a motivation for policymakers to say education is in crisis because that calls their attention, you know, then people are listening to them. And if there's a crisis, then maybe people can be activated to do something or implement a particular kind of agenda. Uh, so, but I think it's, it, it's not that great of a way to talk about education. I think if, if we have real talk about how we're doing in K-20, it is indisputable that we're not doing a great job of educating our students. I think that's just, that, that is a real thing. I mean, some more than others, but the gaps are pronounced along race and class and gender and intersectional lines. So some of our students are getting a really good education. Others of our students are not. And so if we are all serious about wanting all children to learn, you know, and delivering rigorous education, then we've all got to get better at building partnerships and producing scholarships that'll make this happen. Um, and that's part of why I think I want to talk about relevance. I talked about rigor, and I want to talk about relevance. <clears throat> but I'm not, the, I'm not the first person to the pro-relevance party. 
Uh, that's been going on for some time. We have known, uh, we've had been, for decades in education, we've been talking about things like the need for multicultural literature, multicultural education, um, culturally responsive pedagogy. Uh, all of these things have been circulated in education for some time. And we've seen the backlash, the backlash against ethnic studies curricula in Tucson and other places. Um, and so those people, those haters are going to hate, hashtag Trump 2016. <laughs> but they're, they're wrong. Uh, we've actually been duped a little bit because we've been convinced in K-12 and I think K-20 over the years that we have to choose between rigor and relevance. We have been convinced that we have to choose between rigor and relevance because rigor, when we think of it in our head, is this really hard thing, whereas relevance is this really soft thing. So a relevant curriculum is something that is relatable, and if you've ever tried to make calculus relatable, <laughs> that's really hard. Uh, and so uh, the idea that teachers have to choose, and this is why we see in schools, for example, those sort of heroes and holidays approach to cultural relevance. You know, now, now black children, we will do Black History Month. You know, now we will. Uh, now is the day when we do women's suffrage. You know, and so forth. And so we see this patchwork approach to relevance, um, and. I want to suggest that it's a false choice, that we have been duped, that we don't have to choose, and in fact, if we think we have to choose, we're doing it wrong. And this is empirical, first, in the first place. And remember, I'm a statistician. I like to see data. Uh, we know that connections to texts increase recall, retention, and application. That's something that we know, that a student who makes a connection to the text, uh, whether they see themselves in the text, the text is a mirror, or they see other people in the text and they get a better understanding of those people through empathy. That's a window. That's, I'm borrowing the language of Emily Stiles here. I don't want to plagiarize her. Uh, uh, whether the, the, however the student makes a connection to the text, a text to self, text to another text, text to the world, that connection that is the essence of relevance is critical to being able to recall, retain, and repurpose the information in the text. And so if we're giving our students learning objects that we want them to consume, whether it's a video or a text, you know, or a photograph or something like that, or community experience, you know, all of these things, the relatability of it and the relevance of it, you can't have the rigor without the relevance. You can't have the rigor without the relevance because the relevance is what generates the rigor. If you want the student to be able to use the material, not just to know it, but apply it, it has to be made relevant to the student. And it turned out, by the way, that the people who were making a big scene about the ethnic studies classes, there's all this new research that shows that those students who participated in ethnic studies classes were more successful across the curriculum in their other classes if they had taken the ethnic studies class. So, ha. <laughs> that, that doesn't mean that they're going to be restating those classes in Tucson anytime soon. So <clears throat> when we talk about an engaged pedagogy, which is really where I'm going with this, an engaged pedagogy is a pedagogy, I want to say, that uses rigor and relevance for civic engagement. So returning to our original question, what's education for? I think, and I think you probably agree with this because you're here at this conference, uh, the aim of education is and should be to make a better society. Now, we, I talked about the civilizing the little K-2 savages, I, I do love a kindergarten class. Um, I, a couple of years ago, I did uh, more than 100 classroom observations uh, for the Perspectives curriculum, which is the curriculum that Gerald will be working with the K-12 teachers with today. And I grievously injured my back sitting in those tiny little kindergarten chairs. You know? <laughs> I thought I had, would have to be in traction. So we've talked about the civilizing function of K-2 teachers, but really what education is for uh, is not to create child prisons. Um, it is to 
create a better society. And the, how we get to that better society is really the question. So that's, as with everything, the map is not the territory. Um, so one of the cool things, so one of the interesting things about the work that I do, uh, as I said, I have an interesting resume. Uh, I have had the privilege for many years to be a consultant with the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a teaching tolerance division. And I've worked on a number of projects with them. Um, one of the things that we have learned in, the, in that research, uh, in developing different kinds of projects, is that the, the idea of, a, of, of applied pedagogy as civic engagement is something that can be sliced up into discrete parts, and that should give you hope. Because it, it is kind of scary to say to the students that you work with, whether they're kindergarten students or seniors in college, okay, students, now we're gonna go out and change the world. Well, it turns out that there, we can slice that into some parts that make it a little bit more easy to digest and do instructional planning throughout K to 20. Uh, so I wanna talk a little bit about that curriculum, the perspectives curriculum, um, and in particular, the way that it approaches anti-bias education, because I think that that element is useful for all educators in K to 20. So um, the perspectives curriculum is built around four domains of anti-bias education. Uh, and these four domains are important because they allow us to see how we get from the individual unit of the student to the world. Uh, so we begin anti-bias education by talking about identity. Students become comfortable with their identity, they're able to map parts of their identity, uh, they uh, that's the building block. If we don't start with students having an understanding of who they are, or in fact, us as educators, having an understanding of who we are, where do we come from, what are our families like, what kind of values we have, we can't get any further, because uh, the, like, there is no relatability unless you have a foundation to begin the relating. So first, the first thing we do is we have to make students comfortable with their identities. And then we can move on to the next domain, which is the domain of diversity. So society is not just a bunch of little atoms, that they are actually bouncing into each other. And so students need the social and emotional skills associated with diversity, so becoming comfortable with the characteristics of others. Uh, understanding that different people and different cultures have different approaches to different ideas. Uh, and so if we structure our, our, our learning for students, we scaffold them to begin with themselves, move on to understanding diversity, uh, that is an important first step in anti-bias education. Now, Here's something interesting. Uh, we, a lot of us in, in, in throughout K to 20 have been working for years to try to establish uh, prejudice reduction, yeah? And we want our students to be nice to each other. Maybe us, of us even subscribe to what I sometimes call the Bill and Ted School of Pre Prejudice Reduction. Be excellent to each other. Uh, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> thank you for that courtesy laugh. Um, it turns out that prejudice reduction programs in schools, whether we're talking about with undergraduates uh, or in, within graduate school or in K-12, that those programs don't really work very well. Uh, we have a couple decades of research on this now, and it turns out that those programs don't really work very well. And part of the reason that they don't really work very well is that they um, don't address structural injustices uh, that create the conditions that make uh, discrimination happen. And so, in other words, they may improve temporarily the classroom climate so that students know, for example, not to punch each other uh, at recess or whatever and not to call each other racial slurs, but they don't reduce things like implicit bias. They don't reduce things like disparate outcomes 
for students. They don't reduce differential treatment by faculty. Uh, and uh, that, that, when I found that out, I was deeply disappointed. And I was like, surely there's more research. And nope, it's pretty much all, or if the effect happens, it disappears after six months. Well, it turns out that, that part of this is we've been thinking about prejudice wrong. For, we, we have thought about prejudice as an individual problem that can be corrected, right? Your facts are wrong. You believe this about people in wheelchairs, and now I will educate you, and you will be enlightened, and we will all have a great set. No, mm -mm, that's not how it works. Uh, if it worked that way, education wouldn't have disparate outcomes because we have a population of teachers who, by and large, want to save the world, aren't out in it to get rich, and want their students to succeed, and yet not all students are succeeding. So we have, as I said, this background radiation of problems, of structural injustices that need to be addressed. So we have to move beyond identity and diversity, and we have to get to justice and action. Yeah? So the next two domains are the idea of justice, where we inculcate our students with a help, help them to understand that not just that injustices exist, but why injustices exist. To be able to think historically and originally about injustice, to see the way that it manifests in different ways. Um, because when our students become outraged, when our students feel acutely the sense of injustice, they're demonstrating empathy, which is a really important social and emotional skill for them to get to the next level. But they're also being moved towards action, which is the final stage we want them to get to. We want them to understand justice, understand injustice, and then when we get to action, and if we can move our students to action, action can be something that they can own. Yeah, it's not just a requirement on a syllabus. Uh, that's what we want to change service learning and community engagement and engaged pedagogy should be student-led. Students should find action projects that they're passionate about, uh, and this is true in the K K across education in K-20, to uh, and being moved to action, whether it's to stop people from using the R word in an elementary school context, or to uh, create innovations that will transform the community schools, like the Teaching the Movement Initiative here at Whitworth, um, that those are student-led projects where students have recognized inequities and been moved to action. And I want to suggest that, that those four domains are useful for us as educators to think about as we structure classes to try to empower students. Because we talk a lot about empowering students. And sometimes I wonder if empower hasn't become a little bit like rigor. You know, it's every, nobody's against empowering students. No, I want them as disempowered as possible. You know, this is not something that people are against. But it's also fuzzy. We don't really know how to measure it. Uh, and so it is, it is complicated. And I think if we can step back from the language of empowerment and step back from the language of rigor and instead think about intentionally scaffolded experiences where we move students across those domains from self to other to world, uh, then maybe we can have a little bit more of a transformative pedagogy. So. <clears throat> I think there is, if we come back to the aims of education, the leaving out of A. Ducari, that view of education, there is a view of the leading out which is deeply problematic, which is this enlightenment view, right? This sort of you poor, uh, you poor savage, I'm, you know, Rousseau, hello, uh, <laughs> you poor savage, um, you exist in this horrible state of nature, and I'm going to bring you out and enlighten you with all of my ideas. Um, I should say about Rousseau, by the way, that uh, his view of leading, of educating women was deeply problematic, and so in addition to raising the fictional, the fictional boy uh, that he was going to educate, he decided to raise a girl named Sophie, uh, and her job was to be the useful helpmeet for the boy that he had raised. And so 
We have inherited, though, a lot of these Enlightenment ideas about education, and I think one of the reasons that people like Ruby Payne are so popular around the country, these people with a deficit perspective, is that some of us in our own, and I see this in myself a lot, so I want to own this, some of us in our own particular brand of teacher liberalism uh, have a little bit of a savior complex in us. Maybe that's part of the reason that we do this work. And I, I, I call that out because I see that in myself sometimes. And it is, I, I want to say that for me, I have to think about that and be like, hmm, that is, be careful of that because that's a symptom. That's where you're not, remember I started with our, who are, who's being led and where are they being led from? I want to start by, as a teacher, by affirming the abundance that my students bring to the table instead of immediately identifying it as a deficit that needs to be redressed. <clears throat> so education can have this messed up enlightenment view uh, or you sort of, you know, you get out of Plato's cave or whatever. I could go on and on. I have a philosophy degree, so that basically qualified me if my father said to flip burgers. Um, so I had to get another one. <clears throat> but I think there is another way out to lead. So to where do we lead? And I think we could lead, we can lead our students, uh, and it requires thinking differently about what leadership is. That leadership is not simply a, a, a one-way movement, but instead that we can think about leadership as a transactional uh, and dynamic experience where we are learning from our students and our students are learning from us, and together we are creating new bodies of shared knowledge, uh, and that what leadership uh, so different visions of leadership, whether we talk about servant leadership or transformational leadership, and here I'm obviously not going to go into leadership studies because that's a big wormhole. Um, but we do need to think differently about leadership if, if where we want to go is out of systems of oppression, if we want to go out of siloed knowledge, subjects, grade levels, nonprofits, education institutions, I mean, we are all in these different silos in the education and community service ecosphere, and that's one of the things that makes INSLIP so unique, is we, here we are actually having a conversation with each other um, and creating a space to validate our research and creating spaces to plot and plan new conspiracies to transform the world. Um, we can think about leading out education as a path out of silence, the things that we don't talk about but we should be talking about, and out of repression. I think we can do this, it just requires a few things. It requires us, as I said, to change our definition of leadership. It requires us to deeply explore our subject positions um, that in ways that might problematize them or even intentionally displace them. Um, I think we need to change our conception of students, as I said, away from a deficit model. And because we're leading them out, but they're not sheep. I mean, if you've ever tried to lead a kindergartner anywhere, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and we need to get a deep understanding of where our students are from. And we need to build solidarity, I think, across the K-20 ecosystem, because without that, we're going to drift away from each other, and we need each other to be able to validate the place of education in the world. If people in colleges are not standing by their colleagues in the public schools, we're going to continue to see the dissolution of public education in this country, I think. I think. And, uh, and by the way, remember when I said earlier that the majority of students in public schools in the United States are now non-white? and they're low income. Uh, what does that tell us about where, who, what the population is like in the private schools? Yeah, we see by inference, we are seeing this segregation by income and race. Uh, and I think we all have an obligation for, to support public education in this country, which doesn't mean that I don't support wonderful private institutions like Whitworth, like other private schools. But this country will rise or fall based on the strength of its public education system. 
And we are, I think in colleges have a special obligation to support K-12 schools. So I guess I would leave you with to take heart. I've said a bunch of depressing stuff here. Um, but I do think it's possible to be a public intellectual. I think this is something that it is possible to do. And if we rethink what counts as scholarship, uh, and we support each other as colleagues across institutions to validate each other's research and intentionally say so that we get to tenure and promotion and we're creating files, for example, at the, at, at the university level, um, that we are actively validating something as scholarship that may not be, for example, published in a traditional peer-reviewed context. Yeah? So I wrote the study for um, teach, teach Tolerance um, the, where we graded the states on their civil rights standards and most of them failed. Uh, and, and then we did it again in 2014 and most of them still failed. And I'm starting it right now for 2017 and I'm really hoping that they've done better and more than a dozen states have actually consulted with us at Teaching Tolerance and said, we want to develop better standards and resources, tell us how. That's cool, okay? So, and, and oh my God, total fangirl. And for my last report, Henry Louis Gates wrote the intro and I was like, swoon, you know? <laughs> and uh, so here, here the, the, the FDFCLC has produced this report. It's been widely disseminated. Um, it, it has a very famous foreword and it's been widely read. And I, I was um, asked to be part of a job search, an academic job search um, this past year and they, Wanted. And I was, I was pretty lukewarm on it because I, I like what I do, but I was, being invited was nice. And so I said, all right. And I submitted, they asked me to submit a writing sample. And so I submitted this. And the chair of the search committee, uh, which this thing, which had been covered in the New York Times, which uh, thousands of people had read, thanks to the giant megaphone of the FCLC. Uh, and the chair of the search committee asked me if I could submit uh, actually some scholarly work. That would be great. And I said, I don't think this is the job for me. If you don't see this as scholarship, that this is probably not the right fit for me because what I would rather do with my life is produce documents that people are gonna read and then they're gonna take seriously and change the world. And this made me feel very sad about the state of the academy, but it also makes me hopeful that you're here and you're trying to create space that validates the, the scholarship that is interacting with the community. And so I think we, when we think about um, how we teach, I want to stress that we should refuse the choice between rigor and relevance, because I think when we think about the struggles in K-20 writ large, what we are seeing is the, when we see the de-skilling of teachers in the K-12 uh, environment, the cutting out of electives, the removal of music programs, the emphasis on, and I, look, I'm pro-math and reading, don't get me wrong, but the way we see the schools being changed towards rigor, right, uh, and we see them cutting away the relevance, even though we know that that's a false choice. And then on the other hand, in the academy, we see uh, the push for rigor, which again, we can all agree doesn't exist. It's a fiction. It only exists in context, and it only exists if relevance exists. But we see universities really trying to push that way. And I think what we have to do is pull them back. We have to pull them back together, both in spaces like this, but also conceptually, so that we can make the case that we have that application is essential for research and that relevance is essential for rigor. And I think if we stand in solidarity with each other, I do think we can make a difference. I don't think it's gonna be easy, but I think we can do it. So I just wanna say I appreciate being here and I look forward to talking with y'all today. Um, and that's, that's what I gotta say about that. <laughs>